You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree and went night night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. 10. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context that you've given me, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. All right. I'm good enough. You ready to start? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I'm just going to read you a story and that's it. I'm apprehensive. I should tell you this from the start. All right. Th- this is a traditional episode. So. I feel like the last one we did, because I've been on your podcast before. Right. And the last one we did was really fun. So I feel like that we're having to go the opposite of fun to balance it. That's where I feel this is going. I mean, I... I'm just not going to spoil it for you. Okay, let's do it. So we're just going to do it. Okay. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at events in aviation history, like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mishaps, and sometimes just the crazy history of aviation. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator. If you want to see pictures of the events and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at AluminumTube. You can even email me your ideas, your complaints, or whatever at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. I haven't gotten any complaints yet, by the way. Can I be the first? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm teasing. So my co-host um, today is Cindy Wallach. She's been on before. And in fact, probably this will be the episode after the, the previous episode you've been on. We already know that you're not an aviation expert. I am not. Can you confirm for us that you do not know what the story is going to be? About? I have no idea what the story is going to be. And uh, yeah, the only, the only thing I know about airplanes is that they get me from here to there. That is accurate yeah. most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 don't say that. So it hasn't been long since we recorded. Um, anything changed? Any? What's going on? Um, my brain is on island time now since we are in Hawaii. That's the biggest thing that's changed. But other than that, not much. And it's gorgeous around here as usual. And if there's farm noises or whatever, it's because we're on a farm again. Yes. Okay, but I'm glad to have you back. So the last time we did a non-traditional episode, this time we're going to do a traditional episode and you've listened to the show. So you know how we go. I I start with the date and then I talk about the aircraft and the companies involved in the crew. And then we talk about the event and then we say what's changed. And then we talk about how things are now. Okay. Okay. So are you ready to get started? I am so ready. And I wrote this one for you again. I I like to get bits of perspective when I write things and I kind of just, I grab subjects where you, where the co-host can give me bits of perspective oh interesting okay here we go okay so the date is may 2nd 1970 1970 okay yeah the airplane is a mcdonnell douglas dc9 okay it's a narrow body airplane meaning that it has a single aisle okay that's a narrow body it has a single aisle it has two first class seats on each side of the aisle in first class and then in coach it has a two and then a three yeah, I think I've been on airplanes like they're that. Very, it, they're very, very common. Let me show you a picture. Oh, good. Because when I hear like letters and numbers, I go, wow, that means nothing to me. I, to- I totally <laughs> but understand. But you gave me a good description, so that's I totally that's understand, good. and I do have a picture, and I have a better description coming up. Okay. Yeah. It looks pretty traditional airplane. Yeah. Kind of has that old school feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are still in operation. Some of these are still in operation, okay. not the really old ones, but yeah. some of them are still in operation. And we'll talk about like the legacy of the airplane and stuff. After the... after the Take four. After Douglas... See, what happened is I made a typo and now I can't get past it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> after Douglas produced the groundbreaking DC-8 back in 1959, one of the very first jets, they designed and built the DC-9 for shorter flights and it was introduced in 1963. I have a question. What does DC stand for? Douglas Aircraft. But what's this? Should yeah, that be I don't DA? Know. DA, yeah. <laughs> they would always just use DC as a. And the C is for craft and the air is silent. Exactly. <laughs> the air is silent, right? Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. The DC 9 first flew in 1965 and it was certified that same year and Delta Airlines was its launch customer. It had a two-flight deck crew, means it only needed two pilots. And this was really unusual for the era terribly technologically advanced because the other airplanes needed three or more 
oh, pilots. Wow. So this was unusual that they needed two. So basically computers or technology were taking the place of what humans did before. Absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Yep. And the aircraft was a little more simple, but simple in smart design. Like they, it, the technology went forward and was able to simplify this old, where the flight engineer used to sit and there was a big panel there to control all the levels and fuels and blah, blah, blah. Technology simplified all that, took that person out, and now you only have the captain and the first officer. Okay. So pretty groundbreaking. The DC-9 had rear-mounted engines. They were mounted high up on the rear of the fuselage. Where do they normally go? Under the wings. Oh, oh right. Okay. Right? So we saw the picture, and they're basically at the very back uh, of the tube. Baby got High back. up. Got yeah. It. This is, a, this is um, a very popular in corporate jets, and we'll talk about why in a second. Okay. The elevator which is the control surface that makes the airplane go up and down, is also mounted at the very top of the tail, the vertical sta- stabilizer surface. Oh, right, yeah. And that's called a T-tail because it looks like a T-configuration, capital okay. T-configuration. This, con- this configuration has lots of advantages because the wing is completely smooth and there's no engine hanging underneath right. it. Right. So it vibrates the airframe a lot less. Interesting. Causes a lot less vibration, and the airplane essentially flies away from its sound signature because the engines are all the way in the very back. Oh, so it I also see. causes the airplane to have more lift because the wing is clean. There's nothing out there to break up the air. So it's like more fuel efficient. It's more fuel efficient, and it's quieter. So people really like the design. Yeah, you're a good teacher. <laughs> um, certified teacher. <laughs> this configuration is still the most popular configuration for corporate jets. Because of those and a few other things we, that aren't really important. To because rich right people now. don't want like prop washer or whatever. Uh, yeah, well, they not don't. Props, are they? Whatever no, they're jet engines, but yeah. it, it, engines up high in the back also don't get a lot of foreign objects in them. Oh. So you can go to smaller airports where like there's gravel and stuff oh, like interesting. that. Okay. Because if you put them real close to the ground, they have a tendency to suck up all the garbage. Oh, so why wouldn't they all be up high? It's design choices and efficiency choices on the part okay. of the manufacturer. Okay. They announced production for the original DC-9 in 1963. They started producing it in 1965. They ended production for the original design in 1983. Then there were several variants built throughout the 80s and 90s. The design was eventually bought by Boeing. They renamed it the 717 because for some reason, Boeing has to put a 7 in the beginning and a 7 at the end. Oh, is that a thing they do? I do not know why. 777 and 737. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. There was only one airplane by, built by Boeing that didn't have a 7 at the end, and it was the Boeing 720. Oh. Which is just something different. I, I'm going to do an episode on the 720 later. But <laughs> the production for the final variant, though, stopped in 2006. Got okay? it. Okay. Delta Airlines flew the original design DC-9, so the ones that were built probably in 82, 83, they flew those until 2014. Hmm. And there are many companies that still operate the original DC-9, mostly for freight. You're not going to end up on one as a passenger just because they're really old. However, the later 717 models that were built by Boeing, they're still operated in passenger service, most namely by Hawaiian Airlines. Oh, and by Delta Airlines. So they're still they're still flying between the Hawaiian Islands right now. Absolutely, I flew on one the other day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And they're seven seventeen. So they were built in the late nineties to to, and they stopped production in two thousand six. So really, that's that airplane's like fifteen to twenty years old. So are they more suited to to short hops like that? Then they are. Yeah. yeah. They're okay. not. They're not really going to go from Hawaii to the mainland. Gotcha. But the DC nine and all its variants were huge commercial success. They sold about 2,500 units between 1965 and 2006. That makes it the third best-selling large airliner. So for some perspective, the Airbus, the A320, and the Boeing 737, they have each sold about four to five times as many, though. Wow. In the same amount, similar period. Sure. This is kind of an interesting fact. I found in my research that this aircraft has a very rich history, and it is the safest commercial aircraft measured by deaths per 1 million passengers flown in <laughs> that's a statistic is deaths per oh as a passenger i don't like knowing that, that that's a thing 
Which is a statistic. I mean, just the fact that there is a deaths per one million passengers flown yeah, blows that, my mind. And that is how we measure. That and is course, how we measure like, the safety of like, airplanes. There's like the rational side of my brain goes, oh, I'm glad that they measure these things. And then the other side of my brain goes, I don't want to know. <laughs> right, right. But this airplane, so this series of airplane was produced for so long and it is the safest commercial airliner in the history of commercial That's aviation. That's a good thing to be. I also found out that the original tooling for the like the original tooling from like 19, the 60s was sold to the Chinese and they manufacture the airplane still it's very similar it's got some small changes but and it's called the Comac ARJ21 Jingfeng wow. which means soaring phoenix oh so it's still being produced and operated in asian countries that's so you know this is a whole side of airplanes that i don't think about like tooling and the statistics and selling the plans and right right that's, that's so pretty crazy right so boeing sold it when when they were done with it they sold it to so they can still keep making money off of it yeah when they're done that's pretty that's pretty cool smart right and so it's a damn good airplane it's got a rich history it's a really good airplane so there's nothing to see here what could go wrong nothing ever of course right, everything's of course. perfect so that's the point <laughs> Okay, we can stop the podcast <laughs> okay, now. We're all done. Thanks. Uh, thanks yeah. for having me, Shannon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. That's the whole story. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. Okay, it so me. the company. So we're talking about a company called Overseas National Airways. Okay. okay. You're going to know why you've never heard of it in just a second. So ONA, we're going to call it ONA. It's Overseas National Airlines. It was a U.S. airline formed in June 1950 as what's called a supplemental carrier. Okay. The airline started as Air Travel in 1946, the same year it was renamed to Calasia Air Transport. Okay. And then the name changed to Overseas National in 1950. They settled on the business model of being a supplemental carrier. So when I say supplemental carrier, what I mean is that ONA provided extra aircraft and crew to be operated under the name of another carrier. I understand. They're basically a contractor. Okay. ONA ceased operations in 1978, but they were never their own airline. They were always supplemental. And on this day, they were operating as a supplemental carrier for a company called ALM, Antillian Airlines. Okay. ALM was based in Curaçao. It was the flag carrier for Dutch Antilles, and it was the Caribbean subsidiary subsidiary of KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. So as you know, we're talking about the flag carrier of the Dutch Antilles. The Dutch Antilles are made up of the islands of Aruba, Curaçao, and Bonaire. Yes, the ADCs. Yeah. Awesome. Airlines in the Caribbean. ALM's main destinations were Curaçao, Aruba, Bonaire, uh, St. Martin, St. Kitts, Maracaibo, Barranquilla, and Caracas. But they flew to those places from... Also places in the United States, major cities including JFK and Miami, among others. Why do I have the feeling this is going to end in a scuba diving trip? <laughs> okay, keep going. Keep going. Don't, don't I give I mean, it scuba away. diving in the, the, the Caribbean is awesome to dive in. Yeah. With the right equipment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. You have any questions so far? Uh, I do not. So, we're, so what we're talking about real quick to recap is we're talking about a supplemental carrier called OAN and they're operating under... ALM, which is Dutch Antilles Airlines. Got okay. it. The crew we talked about, it consisted of two pilots. And although the aircraft only required two pilots, this flight included a navigator uh-huh. in the cockpit. And the reason for this is because in, in 1970, the navigation in the islands consisted of simple radio beacons, gotcha. literally AM radio beacons called non-directional beacons. And it's just an AM radio station. Oh, my. And... You have an arrow in the cockpit that points to it. Oh. And that's the whole navigation. So uh, so having a navigator in, in the cockpit is pretty old school? Yes. Yeah. Very I, old school. So for me, who knows nothing about aviation, the only time I think about a navigator is like, Amelia Earhart was her navigator and then they disappeared, right? Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, this was really primitive and obviously compared to GPS and a lot of other navigation equipment we've had since and we still have. Yeah. So that's why they added... The navigator, because the pilots are busy flying the airplane, so let's not add too much to their workload. Nobody wants a distracted pilot. Exactly. You know, and the navigator that they add is typically very comfortable with 
the topography and geography of where they are. So they're not going to send somebody who's never been there before as the navigator. Right. They're going to send somebody who knows what, what they're doing. So in addition to those two pilots, one navigator, there's three flight attendants on board the aircraft. It's worth noting that the pilots and the navigator worked for OAN, okay, the contractor, while the flight attendants worked for ALM. Okay, so ALM was the Dutch Antilles. That's the subsidiary of KLM. So that's the airline they're operating under. Because remember that OAN is providing supplemental lift, but ALM is operating the flight. So they want to give the passengers the ALM experience. Okay, got but, it. But the crew is not. Sure. They're using a contractor. So the aircraft on this day was painted in the colors of overseas national airways. So it was an OAN airplane. And I showed you the pic of the OAN, OAN right. airplane. But it was operated as an ALM flight. So it's a little strange by modern standards to see an airplane that's not branded as like oh. the airline you're getting on. Kind of pull up to the gate. So like you're expecting to get on that Southwest right. kind of like colorful thing. And then you're like, oh, this and is you're a like, weird what's gray this airplane. Green, right. What's this green airplane that just oh, pulled up? Or what's this sure. gray airplane? Yeah, yeah. By modern standards, that seems a little strange. But it was actually pretty common back then. Okay. For modern reference, Hooters Air. Do you remember this? I do. Trump Airlines. Oh, they, okay. There was something called Trump Airlines. <laughs> and sure. a few other like brands that kind of came in. And let me go. guess. Wait, wait, wait. Did it go bankrupt? It did. Oh, crazy. Who would have thunk it? I know. Oh, oh I thought God. he is such a good businessman. <laughs> Trump Airlines, a few others, they were brands that were actually operated wholly by supplemental carriers and the supplemental crews. So like Hooters Air was never Hooters Air. It was another supplemental carrier. And all they did was fly Hooters Air branded airplanes. So basically they painted a certain way, put the girls on. That's it. And I'm a Hooters plane. Right. Got it. But okay. everything else was a different That's company. That's the supplemental. I get it. That the makes sense. Right. And the reason is because it's difficult to start your own airline. It takes a lot of authorizations and a lot of sure. moving pieces. And if you're just going to start Hooters Air and you don't know if it's going to work out... Use yeah. a contractor. Yeah. If you're going to start Trump Air- Airlines and we know it's not going to work out, use a contractor. <laughs> and hopefully pay them too. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't. I, I should get into that sometime. How many How many people went unpaid when that went out of business? But that's an entirely another story. Yeah. So let's talk about the events. So we said it happened on May 2nd, 1970. So ALM Flight 980... You look nervous already. I do. I I got a pit in my stomach when you said the date. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. May 2nd, 1970. ALM 980 departs JFK Airport with 57 passengers and six crew and was bound for the Princess Juliana International Airport on the beautiful island of St. Martin. Wait, where did they depart from? JFK. Okay, so a long flight. Yeah, right. They're leaving from JFK in New York, and they're going to Princess Juliana Airport, which is in on St. Martin. And they're not stopping? N- nonstop. Okay. Um, the flight was scheduled to take just under four hours, and the flight departed JFK at around 11 a.m. that day. Okay. The airplane had arrived that morning at about 7.30 a.m., arrived into JFK about 7.30 a.m. with a different crew. There were no mechanical issues with the aircraft. However, prior to departing the airport, the captain found that the PA, the public address system, was not operating. The pilots couldn't directly address the passengers. Okay. Now, at the time, this was not an issue that would ground the airplane. Sure. Is it an issue that would ground airplanes today? It is. Really? It absolutely is. At the time, it wasn't an issue that would ground the airplane or cause a gate return. Like now, if we tried to make a PA announcement and it didn't work, we would do a gate return. We would and why, return to why the gate. is that? Like, what's the safety concern there? Because you need to be able to talk to the passengers in flight. But couldn't you like tell the flight attendant like say this and then they could say that's thing? the old school way. Okay, that was what the, that that's what we, you would have done in back in 1970. Is Got you would it. have picked up the phone and you would have said, "Hey, uh, you know, Mister Purser, which is the main flight attendant, can you tell the passengers this and this this?" Instead of being able to just key the mic and make a PA. Sure. Okay. But it wasn't a problem, so they departed. Okay. The airplane was fine. On climb out, the captain said that the fuel gauges, although correct, acted erratically and bounced around and occasionally sticking, but ultimately they were accurate. That sounds pretty jankety. Like, so when we say gauges, it's like the old school, like yeah, a needle. Yeah, it's like a needle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have much more accurate equipment now, but I wouldn't 
necessarily say it was unusual for have like a little bit of so like you're sloshing sloshing the fuel and yeah it's got a exactly it's kind of got a well it doesn't have a float it actually uses a, an electronic conductivity okay pickup but as the fuel kind of moves through it um you can imagine that the gas gauge would go up and down kind of like an old pickup truck yeah might i don't want to imagine that in my airplane <laughs> I'd like to think it's more accurate, but okay. It's right, but they did a lot of fuel calculations, so they knew how much fuel would go on the, the airplane. They knew how much would burn. They did the math. They did the math. So the captain looked at it and he said, "It it basically agrees with the math." And there's and some before they took off. There's a crew who was filling yeah. it up. Yeah, so and he like, got the fuel slip. And I mean, yeah, right. no, we're we're legit. All right, we're legit. Okay. The calculated fuel was also compared to the indicated fuel, like I said, and the gauges were found to be accurate. But now we have two broken things. We have an OPA and a janky fuel indicator. I mean, that's what we have so far. Okay. So they flew to the Caribbean in early May, which is a perfect time for a vacay in the Caribbean. But let's take a second and talk about St. Martin and the Princess Juliana International Airport. Are you familiar with this? I, I don't know that airport. Okay. This, there is a beach called Maho Beach. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is this the one... Where they practically land on the beach? Yes. Okay, yeah. That's Princess Juliana Airport in 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 St. Martin. That's Maho Beach. Yeah. There's so many photos of this online. I've been there. It's amazing. You know, people like stand there and take videos as the airplane lands. Yes. But then also when the airplanes go to take off, they do st- dumb stuff like grab a hold of the fence and stand behind 747s. Oh, and humans, mostly they end up humans, going running because they get sandblasted. Sure. They go running and dive down, roll down the hill. and. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's actually even little gates where when the airplane lines up for the runway, there's little gates across the road because it's Maho Beach, a road that's real tight in there, and then the airport where the airplanes are taking off. There's little gates that go down and the cars stop. Uh, yeah, I would Lest hope so. the cars be blown off the road. That would be super bad. <laughs> right. It is, it, is that, it, it is that aggressive. It yeah. can be that aggressive. I'm surprised that they still allow that beach to be there in this day and age of litigation. I think it's just... I mean, it's a fun spot to It's visit. become a thing. It's become a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like on Instagram, there's like a gajillion pictures of oh, people yes. on that beach. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, it really is a fun spot to visit. If you ever get down to St. Martin, I recommend it. It's it's an awesome, it's an awesome spot. So that's where they were going to land. Okay. Got it. The flight went as planned and there were no hiccups. Around 2.15 in the afternoon, the controllers in San Juan advised the flight crew prior to landing that the weather had deteriorated and that storm... Storm clouds and a squall had come up. The weather was not forecast, and it was quite strong. Okay. Okay. As ALM 980 descended to the airport, the controllers cleared the DC-9 from 21,000 feet down to 10,000 feet. So if we're talking about Maho Beach on this day, it was unlikely that there would be visitors there. Okay. Right. So you're still landing over a beach where people you are, could but go, but it hadn't become like a spectator sport at that point. It had at that point, but oh. on this day, it's rainy. Oh, really, oh right, because there's a storm. Really rainy, That's really why. windy and stormy. Okay, okay. So ALM 980 was cleared for the final descent into the airport and expected to do the NDB approach, which stands for non-directional beacon. It's basically an AM radio station and the needle points at it. That's it reminds me of like a grade school when you take the like the magnet rock and the needle and you're like, hey, it's going to turn north. That's pretty much what it is. But yeah. just imagine that you have a magnet out there kind of in front of the bowl and you can just make it like go. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it is. Okay. As we said before, it's pretty inaccurate. We'll talk about that later. But so what's the like? So what's the like the weather and the visibility right now is pretty rubbish. Yes, it is. It's not good. Before they start the approach, the tower at Princess Juliana Airport in St. Martin calls San Juan Center, who's talking to the pilots, and they say, hey, the weather's really bad. You're not going to be able to land. You're going to have to go somewhere else. So the pilots then advise San Juan that they intend to turn around and divert to San Juan. So the aircraft turns 180 degrees around, starts climbing back to altitude, to go to San Juan. And how far away is San Juan? San Juan is about 250 miles. Oh, so that's quite a diversion. It's quite a distance. Okay. Now, they were halfway through. So they're going to turn around about 130 miles out. They're going to turn around and they're going to go back to San Juan. So they've got 20 minutes or something okay. back to San Juan. They turn around. They start heading back to San Juan. So as the airplane begins its climb back up from 10,000 feet to 21,000 feet, the St. Martin Tower calls the airplane directly and says, hey, the weather's improved. You can come back and do the approach if you want. So I was thinking that because when you said it was a squall, squalls come up mean and angry, and then they usually disappear pretty quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and they and they there's like clouds kind of behind them, and yeah. you know sometimes there's a, a real hard squall, and then little like areas of rain that push through behind. Sure. The ALM 980, they make the decision to turn back around. They start their descent back down. They begin the approach. This was a bit of unexpected fuel burn issue for the DC-9. Uh-oh. The engines that they used at the time were pretty inefficient as far as modern standards. So airlines typically landed near their minimum fuel. And this was a pretty when long... When you say near their minimum fuel, you mean like running on fumes? No, I mean they need about 45 minutes worth of reserve okay. fuel. And this is, you know... They've flown all the way from JFK, and this is a short-range aircraft. So by the time they get to St. Martin, they have minimums. Got it. Okay. But their last little diversion where they turned around, it was a small diversion. So at this point, their fuel is fine. They're fine. They think about it, and they go, nah, it's fine. Now let me tell you about these approaches, which are still in use a few places today. Russia, northern Canada, stuff like that. They're easy to maintain and cheap. They're not very accurate and not very reliable. We talked about it. It's like navigating to a a radio beacon by just pointing at it. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it. And sometimes the beacon is not on the airport, so you'll like fly across the beacon and then you'll start a timer to know when you have like when you're looking for the airport, when you like your time expires and you've passed it, and then you'll take off and go missed. Because if you're in the clouds, you'll like start the time and be like, oh well, it's been a minute and a half. We didn't see it, so let's go around. Whoa. But in this case, the beacon is on the field. Okay. So all they have to do is fly to the beacon, and when the needle goes from straight up to back behind them, right? they know they're past it. Okay. That's it. That's the basics of it. Super easy. These are not really tricky, but they require higher cloud clearances. Okay. Right? So the clouds have to be a little bit higher because they don't want to get airplanes real close to the ground with inaccurate Sure. So they do the approach. The ALM 980 crew does not see the airport, and they initiate a go-around. Initially, they consider going to San Juan, but at this point, they decide they aren't sure if they have enough fuel to get there now because they've done the little diversion, they've done the approach, they've gone missed, and now they have to fly the full 250 miles back to San Juan. So they just decide to make a small circle. So they're like, eh, I don't think we should go to San Juan. The truth is, they probably don't have enough fuel to get all the way to San Juan, but they do have other options. They have St. Croix, St. Thomas, the BVIs, St. Kitts, which are all closer than San Juan. And so the other thing I'm wondering is the reason why they had a miss is because of the visibility, because yeah. of the storm. So if it had been a sunny day, this would none of this would be an issue. No. Okay. They would have just landed and it would have been fine. Okay. Then the Princess Juliana Tower pipes in and... St- Tells ALM 980 again, the secondary squall or whatever they had has passed and the airport of visibility is now better. So the crew decides to try it again. So now they don't clean up the airplane because they're kind of at low altitude. So they've got flaps hanging out and they're just they're just going to kind of go around and do the approach procedure again. They climb up to 4,000 feet. Their power settings kind of high. They go around. They do the procedure yet, yet again. Okay. So let's talk aerodynamics real quick. Let's. I'll have a lot to contribute to our discussion of aerodynamics. You're going to understand. Okay. I'm going to put it in really easy terms. (laughs) So the flaps that come out of the back of the wing, you know about those? Yeah. They cause drag. Okay. And if you want to fly an airplane with drag, you need more power. Got it. So those flaps are already down. Yeah. So they have to use more. And they didn't didn't pull them up. They just decided to kind of make a smaller circle to the airport, come back around, do the procedure again. But that just means they need a little more power. I do get that because as a sailor, sometimes boats deploy sea anchors, like if they're in rough seas. Right. And then then you're like, yeah, you'd be dragging that thing. Right. You'd have to. You need a lot more power. Absolutely. Okay. And jet engines, just as a side note, jet engines burn a lot more gas close to the ground. That's why they fly real high. Uh, it's because they burn less fuel the higher they fly. Okay. Get them close to the ground, they burn more fuel. Got so it. So they're not jet engines. Jet airplanes aren't really intended to fly around close to the ground. Okay. All this comes down to the fact that the airplane is burning about 15 gallons every minute. The pilots measure that in pounds. So that's about 100 pounds a minute or 6,000 pounds an hour. This airplane was supposed to land with 4,000 pounds of fuel, 40 minutes of gas. Okay. And that would be if they landed on the first try. So that's with no diversions, no messing around, landed on the first try, 
So you can see that the more we fly around down low, we don't land, the closer we get to a fuel emergency. So I do have a question. Yeah. So um, if you have a janky fuel indicator and, and, you're, and you're in a situation like this, who in the cockpit is in charge of doing that math? So it would be the flight crew is in charge of doing Both, the math. Like everybody. I mean, is it like yes. the, the oh, first no, officer? It's gonna be, oh, no, no, no. It's going to be, a, it's gonna be a, 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 an effort. Okay. You know, a coordinated effort. Okay. Between all of the pilots, including, in this case, the navigator, who was also a pilot. Got it. So anyway, they're on their second attempt. So after following the procedure, the crew sees the airport, but they see it too late. Oh, no. And the aircraft's not aligned with the runway, and they can't get it aligned. Ugh. So they're off center. So they go around again. Oof. And at this point, the crew is becoming concerned about their fuel situation. They check the gauges, and again, the gauges are acting erratically. Uh. At one point, the crew saw as low as 850 pounds. We said they burn about 100 pounds a minute. Yeah. So at this point, we're looking at 8 to 10 minutes of fuel. That, Oof. But the needles seem to settle around 3,000 pounds Okay. as an average. They're kind of bouncing around. Sure. So after that landing attempt... The aircraft crew climbs back up, follows the procedure again. Please tell me. Sees the Princess Juliana Airport Yay, again. Yay, they see it. But this time, no. the pilots are nervous. <gasps> the airplane isn't configured correctly, and they're too fast. Nervous? <laughs> Aren't they trained not to be nervous? <laughs> Shouldn't they? Like, at this point, uh, uh, you know, the clouds are gone, and the storm is over, and the sun is shining. They shouldn't be nervous. They should be like, yeah. Well, there's still clouds, but it's not like really windy okay. and it's not rainy. They've seen the airport. There's still clouds, but they, they see the airport, but they just, they're just nervous. They're doing math and they know what's going on. And, yeah. And they're yeah. just getting a little behind the airplane and the airplane jets are very specific with how fast you can land them and they don't slow down easily. So these guys cannot get the airplane slowed. So they can't safely land. And Princess Juliana Airport lands over the beach, and there's a hill directly in front of you. So you have to land and stop. Right. Right? So they went around again. Oof. So now we've had... I have a question. Hey, no PA system. What are you telling the passengers during all this? Oops, we're going to try again. So they're telling the passengers nothing during this because they don't have a PA system. Can you imagine as a passenger just watching yourself make four loop-de-doops? I... I can't. No. I mean, I, I we as an air, as a pilot, we would have to advise the passengers for a hundred percent sure. Yeah. So now we've done three approach tries. We've had three go arounds and a short diversion. Oof. And now you're looking really nervous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was also thinking about the um, the scenario you described, where you have the beach and then you said a hill right there. Yeah. And it, and it made me think about like they, they should set up the airport like an aircraft carrier where they just catch it. Yeah. <laughs> One of those things. That is, and 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 at Princess Juliana, that is why they fly so low over the beach, is because they have to land in the very beginning part of the runway. Right. So that's what makes the airport or the beach there so famous with the airport real close, is because the airport is a little shorter, and they also have to do what's called a standing takeoff. So they have to put on full power, and then let release the brakes, and that's why the airport is so famous. Wow. Is because it's short landing, like an aircraft And I'm sorry if I'm getting way off topic. but No, no. uh, So like as a pilot, like if you're going to pilot school and you're doing your pilot thing, you know, and then like you're used to landing in like Cincinnati or like like whatever. And then one day they're like, hey, you're flying to the Caribbean. Like how do you train for like a weird situation like that? We have orientation for each airport and we run all the numbers and we have all the landing data. And these these pilots had been to Princess Juliana before. Yeah. 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 So... It's not terribly short, but it's short enough to like cause you to go, okay, this needs, we need to be accurate. Yeah, of That's course. All. Yeah, you're not going to land in JFK where you have 14,000 feet and kind of like you could land and take off and land again, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but anyway, so the captain decides that St. Martin at this point is not working. Okay. It's not going to work out. And he decides that they need to go somewhere else. So he basically loses his cool. Or, like, loses his confidence. He loses his confidence. You know, he really shouldn't have tried that many times. Oof. He really should have just been like, we need to go somewhere else. Like, like for after the two, first time. Ago, yeah. Yeah. Or after he made the decision initially to go to San Juan, maybe he should have just gone to San Juan. Yeah. But now he decides that it's not working. He advises the tower that they're diverting and that he has a potential fuel emergency. He elects to divert to St. Croix. 
which he thinks is the closest airport, but it's not. Oh. BVI's is closer and St. Kitts is closer, but the 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 closest big airport is the Naval Air Station in St. Croix. Okay. 130 miles away. Down low, flying the speed they're flying, that's 25 minutes. Okay. Okay. So the crew turns the DC-9 north and begins to head towards St. Croix. And again, the crew notices the fuel gauge discrepancy, right? And they calculate the fuel. Now, this is a bit hard, and you, you touched on this before. This is a bit hard because they don't really know how much those approaches cost them as far as fuel. Sure. They don't really know. Like, they're flying around down low, high power setting. So it's kind of an estimate. It's super hard to make decisions based on that. So here's a quote from the captain. Quote, by the time we climbed up to 7,000 feet, the navigator and I were trying to analyze the situation and decide on closer fields. I decided there was no way for me to decide whether the gauge was accurate or inaccurate. So I had to believe it. If at this time I did in fact have this low fuel, I would best get back on the water and find a place to ditch the airplane. Ooh. Unquote. Wow. Yeah. But hey, you just read that in the past tense, which tells me he made it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see how I'm jumping ahead like that? Okay. So the captain decides that the airplane isn't going to make it to St. Croix, right? Because we just read the quote. The crew advises San Juan Center of their intention to ditch the aircraft in the Caribbean. Oh, so wait, that wasn't just speculation. He's like, I've got a ditch. That's my only. Yeah. Holy cow. Because he wants to ditch with power on. He doesn't want to like wait. He doesn't want to wait. Yeah, because you have control. And you can land flat on your belly. You can land flat. You can have like, because the sea, if the sea is moving, you can like have a good spot. I have have so many questions now. That's fine. If you ditch an airplane controlled, do they float or is it eventually a lost plane? We're getting there. Oh, Okay, and then also, like that means that they deploy those little those little life rafts that the you rafts always see. And stuff, yeah, that's like that's like the picture you always go, ooh, that would be cool, but it wouldn't be cool. But you kind of wonder about it, right? Because you know, right? In a control. Okay, so, so the captain decides that the airplane's not going to make it to St. Croix. He advises San Juan Center of their intention to ditch the aircraft in the ocean. The captain then calls the chief flight attendant, and he advises him to prepare the cabin for ditching. Oh, wait. And so the announcement goes like this. Ladies and gentlemen, this flight is now a cruise. (laughs) Welcome to the Caribbean. Pretty much. (laughs) Except the purser works for ALM, and he speaks Dutch. Now, he has English as a second language, but he speaks Dutch. The purser feels as though he's been advised that to prepare the cabin to ditch as a precaution. So the cabin crew still thinks they're going to land. So the purser didn't quite get. He didn't quite get it. Or the captain wasn't quite clear enough. But there's a miscommunication there. Oh, boy. Okay. So the purser now advises the other cabin crew that they have to don life vests and and get the rafts ready. Okay. Some of the passengers are unable to get their vests out from under their seat. They're kind of stuck under their seat. And the cabin crew struggles to get the life rafts out from the storage areas. This plane has so many problems. So the life rafts are really heavy. All right. You'd think for planes that are going to the Caribbean, that would be the thing that they check a lot. You would think so. You would think. Okay. So the purser calls the captain and says, we're struggling to get the life rafts out from their storage area. But he says it with a cute Dutch accent. Of course. We are struggling. I don't know. I don't know what Dutch. Dutch I would love to do it. I would love to do accents. That's I'm usually a good I'm kind of an accent slut, but I don't think I've been around enough Dutch people. <laughs> so the navigator, so the captain sends the navigator back to help the purser get the rafts ready. So the navigator now comes back. Because they figure we don't need the navigator because we're just landing in the water. We're landing in the water, so we don't need the navigator anymore. The purser and the navigator are able to pull the life raft out, the front life raft out, but they get it stuck in the galley. They get it stuck Stop. in the hallway in the forward Stop. galley. So hold on, hold on. Where is this life raft stored? So it's stored in a conta- in a compartment underneath the galley in the front, near the exit. So, but the passengers can see these guys struggling with yes. it. And, and they get this big box out and it's 18 by 18 and oh. it's really heavy and it's stuck. Now it's stuck in the aisle. Oh my goodness. Okay, so now to get out of the airplane in the front, you have to climb over this 18 by 18 inch box. Fab. Yeah, so this is an obstruction already. Back in the cockpit, the captain and the first officer are setting up for the ditching. They've aligned the airplane parallel to the swell 
in an attempt to avoid crashing head on into it. Got right. It. So you want to land parallel with the swell. So if the ocean is rolling this way, you want to land along it, not like I would think that straight would, into okay, it. Okay. Okay. The captain begins descending a little at a time to get perspective on the ocean. So he can, this is what the power's for. Sure. So now he still has power and he starts configuring the airplane. So he's putting flaps down, but he doesn't put gear down because they're landing in water. Right. So remember that squall that we had? Yeah. Well, it was heading from the east to the west and now they're west of the airport. <gasps> that squall had whipped up the seas and the seas responded to the spring storm. Records from sailors that day show eight foot seas. Well, that's no fun. And so as a sailor, you don't want to be parallel. I, I mean, airplanes are not boats. I get it. Yeah, airplanes are but not boats. But because like, then you're going to get, you're going to get, you know, approached by a wave. Right. But the issue with an airplane is you have to dissipate all the energy. Okay. Right. You have to dissipate. And, and the you best way. Like, right. Yeah. You don't want. The nose bucking up. And, exactly. Because it's cr- not a boat. Kind of crashing into the yeah. wave because it'll break the airplane apart. So you oh. have to l- l- land longitudinally like down the wave Got it. and actually just tip down on the back side of the wave is the optimal so touch down at the crest and then roll down to the back side of it that's sort of the ideal that's the ideal okay so the captain then issues a mayday and he advises on the emergency frequency that alm 980 the dc9 was going to land in the open ocean 50 miles from anything Oof. an american airlines airplane overhead with passengers on board relays the messages to air traffic control because they can't hear the alm 980 because they're too low oh and it's vhf so it's line of sight oh no that's terrible right the american airlines airplane starts to begin a descent through ten thousand feet of thick ass clouds toward where the alm said they were located to like help them yeah So the American Airlines airplane breaks out of the clouds just a thousand feet above the water. Wow. And he begins searching for the DC-9. Now he's flying a jet. What can can he do to help? Well, he can relay. He can relay. He can relay radio. He can also say, this is my location right now. So he can help with the rescue effort. This guy's a hero because he says, I'm here. I'm close. Right. I can go find these people and I can stay there and I can tell everybody else where they are. Wow. So he descends down and he starts searching visually for the DC-9. So back on ALM 980, the low fuel lights come on about 500 feet and within 30 seconds, both engines flame out. So they run out of fuel. Wait, so you only get 30 seconds between the low fuel light and I'm out of fuel? There's a problem with this airplane. Okay. So we're not exactly sure why they didn't have more warning, but they didn't. Okay. The engines flame out, and at 3.45 p.m., the DC-9, the ALM 980, touches the water of the Caribbean. West of St. Martin, east of St. Croix. Now here's the kicker. Due to the failed PA system, the captain was unable to advise the flight attendants or the passengers that the aircraft was going to hit the ocean. Oof. One thing is for sure, everyone but the pilots was were caught off guard. So <laughs> there's windows. <laughs> I mean, right, I what agree. What did they think was going on? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Many of the passengers were standing up, what? trying to get their life vests either out from under the seat or oh. on. Some of them were in their seats and... Many of them thought that they were simply making a low approach to Princess Juliana Airport because... Oh, because that's how it goes in. That's how it goes in. Oh, no. Oh, no. Of the passengers sitting, only a few had their seatbelts fastened. Of course. The captain landed successfully on the backside of a swell, and in the next few seconds, in those eight-foot seas, the DC-9 became a submarine, (gasps) plunging (gasps) under the water as the momentum dissipated, the next swell breaking over the top of the airplane. I knew it was going to break over the plane. So now at that point, it doesn't pop back up again. It does. Oh, it does. The airplane emerged amazingly intact, but badly damaged and leaking. Okay, fun. The galleys spilled all of their contents, further blocking the forward exits. Because remember, we are dissipating all that energy to the forward. Okay, my like Disneyland version of the little fun life rafts to come off the sides is now all gone. Now the forward exits exits are blocked from the passenger compartment with all the galley material, everything that slid forward. The navigator was able to open the forward door and he attempted to get the raft 
out of the airplane. But once you open that forward door, aren't you letting the ocean in? I mean, that's ultimately what I feel like they happen. should have like a top door. Right. But <laughs> or something. In the, but in this airplane, so it, it would sit because the engines are in the back, it would sit with the tail down. Oh, so it's kind of sitting okay. with the nose up. But it's gonna let water in, especially in eight foot seas. Yeah. But it gets worse. Oh. The navigator was able to open the forward door, but in his attempt to get the raft outside of the aircraft, he manages to inflate the raft <gasps> in the galley. No. <laughs> this is a huge raft. It seats it's a 30-man raft, oh. a round raft with an 18-person overage. Oh no. This raft is probably 10 feet in diameter. Premature raftage. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, no. So now the forward exits are firmly blocked. Oh, no. So the navigator, the purser, the first officer, and the captain, and one passenger who had been thrown forward into the cockpit door on impact were able to exit the forward exits. Whoa. The cabin crew remaining popped the over-the-wing exits, and people did get out. But no raft ever made it out of the DC-9. The passengers are now adrift. Within three minutes, the shredded DC-9 had sunk in over 5,000 feet of water. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, it is a scuba diving thing now. Yeah. And with the sinking wreckage, 23 of the 63 people on board. Oh, no. Some people had been killed by blunt force. Others (gasps) just drowned. Oh, and so um, the the crew, the little cute accented crew, they're gone. Among the fatalities was a flight attendant. Okay. Also a nine-month-old child. <gasps> oh, no. The wreckage would never be recovered. No. So we lost one flight attendant of the crew. The other, four, the other five survived. Whoa. The American Airlines was, was within minutes and worked as a relay to the Naval Air Station in St. Croix. The pilot stayed and circled the site until the first rescue aircraft arrived. Wow. That's amazing of him. Remember he had passengers on board? Yeah. He circles the site for nearly an hour. Wow. But he knew that he had enough fuel to do that. He did. He was (laughs) like, I got it. It's good. It's good. Here we are. And because he's American Airlines, he'd probably come out of Miami. Right. So he didn't, he wasn't as critical on fuel as coming out of New York. Yeah. I didn't look into that flight, but that's my guess is he'd come out of Miami or he'd come out of a Southern a southern spot and he wasn't concerned about fuel the reason i say that is the dc-9 was a short-range airplane and that jfk to saint martin was a stretch Oof. so the first rescue aircraft arrives on the scene and it's a naval seaplane dogs barking yes it cannot land due to the high seas oh so it's a seaplane but it can't land so it deploys two rafts into the ocean. So they just drop them down. They like, just drop them. They push them out the back and they drop them. So the captain swims to one of the rafts and the navigator swims to the other. Each were able to get in the raft, but these are big round rafts and neither of these rafts are able to be navigated to the to the rest of the people yeah. still in the water. Remember, we're in eight foot seas and the paddles in the raft are cloth. No. They're rescue paddles. They're not like real oars. I was going to say, even even if there wasn't a storm... That, you can't paddle something like that. You'd be like... What, by yourself? You yeah. get this, you know, 10-foot around raft and you're sure. going to like round raft? So it yeah. doesn't even have like a direction. You're oh, just... no. Mm. Thanks, Navy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we shouldn't say that. <laughs> Those rescuer guys put their lives on the line all the time. Absolutely. But, but I, that does not sound like the best raft to use. No, it's no. what they had. Yeah. 1.5 hours after the crash, a helicopter arrives on scene. It drops two rafts immediately. Both are blown away. Oh, Both get blown no. away. But the, the helicopter hovers and is able to recover a dozen or so passengers. Oh, wow. Over the course of the next hour, all 40 survivors are plucked one by one from the ocean. The first officer is the last person to be picked up more than two and a half hours after, di- after the ditching of ALM 980. Of the 40 survivors, 37 are seriously injured. Oh, what an, and they're all just like, I'm going on vacation in the Caribbean. Oh, that's so tragic. Hey, by the way, I want to thank you for telling this to me right before I'm going to go on a transoceanic flight. 
Woo-hoo! You're going to have to do like a Men in Black where you like just zap it from my memory. But I figured I that you'd be able to, that, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to give us some perspective about okay. eight foot seas. So yeah. the survivors recall very rough seas, but each and every survivor reports a large amount of shark activity, <sighs> all of them having shark sightings. Ultimately, no one was attacked. That's good. But it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened. Yeah. Okay. Everything, apparently. Yeah. So what do you think happened? Well, it sounds like they were on an aircraft that was not ready to do the job. It may have had a little bit of, yeah, it may have had like a mechanical issue. And we, we know that it had an erratic fuel system. Right. But as we talked about, the maths show that we were able to track back and go, oh, the airplane had enough fuel to get to. Right. So. So my question, you know, when I was thinking about it, when you said if they had just gone to San Juan, the things would have been better. When the flight tower called them and said, hey, the storm's cleared now. Like whose call is that? That the pilot's call or? It's the pilot's call. Okay. So the NTSB reported pilot error. Okay. As the leading cause. Poor crew decision making in their repeated attempts to land at the destination. We have a name for this in aviation. It's called get there itis. I was just thinking, like they're they're just kind of like, I got a job to do. These tourists want to have their vacation. Right. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the pilots have ho- the hotel. They've probably been there a million times, so they have their favorite bar, and sure. they like to. I mean, they're like, oh man, we're doing an overnight in in St. Martin. It's a beautiful place. We'll go to the you know, get grab a cocktail down by the beach. So they have what do you call it? Like a bias. That, sure. That's where they want to go. But we call it get there itis. What happens here, though, is a little special. So initially, they decided that they're going to go to San Juan, but then the tower calls them and kind of like lures them back. I felt like that tower was like a siren's call. Yeah. It, Come back. It it's was. okay now. Yeah. we're. Oh, it's better. You can land now. We're right? here in paradise. Do you hear us? Come back. So they tried the approach, and they missed the landing. And then they talked about, hey, how much fuel do we have? But then the tower lures them back in and says, right. oh, hey... You know, the reason you couldn't land, that's all gone now. Come on back. It's totally a siren. Oh. Maybe it wasn't even the tower. That's a good call. I yeah. mean, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. that, but it literally is like a siren's call. Yeah. So the second time, so here's where it becomes the siren's call. The second time they saw the runway, but they just saw it too late mm. and they just weren't aligned with it. So at this point you go oh, well, I can see it, so why not try again? Right. Right? We can make it this time because we saw it last time. Oh. So now the crew gets rushed, and they're now they're worried in the moment about the fuel. So they struggle to keep the airplane in the landing configuration, and they end up having to go around a third time. Mm. And by this time, as we know, it's too late, Okay. So they made an error in their piloting abilities. They just failed to get the airplane slowed down the third time, but they didn't have any fuel, enough fuel to go anywhere else. And so that's really what happened. Now, from a pilot's perspective, I feel like they would have been better off staying right there in the area of the Princess Juliana Airport if they didn't have fuel. Okay. Because ultimately, they headed toward the open ocean. Right. And again... So what would staying near the airport have done for them? So they could have ditched just off the coast. Oh, just a closer ditch so yeah. that they're not like, right. yeah. Or they could have potentially landed at the airport again. So, you know, as a sailor, my thought is, though, if, you, if you're if you ditching close to the island, you're like, oh, I'm going to hit the anchored boats. I'm always worried about the anchored boats. Or, you know, there's a lot of tourist activity. Well, not during a stormy day, but there's still sure. anchored boats. Oh, I, I absolutely yeah. agree. I just don't, I'm not, and again, you know, I'm, I don't use crew names because I'm not going to like throw these guys oh, under course. the bus. You're not there. There is a, like I said, there's an inherent bias, but these guys, I mean, there's a lot going on. Oh, there's a lot so going on. Much. They're trying to calculate fuel and then they're unable to calculate the fuel because they're like, oh, well, we can't really calculate it for this. Right. Because we did these procedures. We don't have a set. We don't have a table, a chart that's going to tell us. So we have to trust the gauges. Yeah. In retrospect, that was one of the smartest things the captain said. Well, if I had to do math under pressure, I wouldn't be able to do anything, let alone land an airplane. <laughs> that's a lot of mathing. Right. But it's also a lot of pressure. And this, yeah. is, this is what they struggled with the third time is landing the airplane. Right. The NTSB talks about what contributes to the death of the passengers. 
The pilot didn't convey or failed to convey the severity of the situation with the cabin crew or the cabin crew didn't understand because of the language barrier. But regardless, there was a communication breakdown and the cabin crew wasn't on the same page as the flight crew. Like I said, they didn't work for the same company. So some of the procedures and signals like binging of the bell or, you know, certain phrases were trained on those phrases for the company we work for. And if you take the two companies and you mesh them together, like if you took Southwest airline flight attendants and you put them on a Delta flight, they would be like, I don't really know what that chime means. Really? Yeah. Huh. If you ever notice, here's a good way. If you ever notice, just before you take off, some airplanes will say, flight attendants prepare for departure. Okay. And some airlines will say, flight attendants be seated. So, and but... Okay. I mean, they're small things. They yeah. seem like small things, but in an emergency, that's when it really in matters. In an emergency, that's, that's a That's when it really deal. matters. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So the cabin crew's like, company languages were a little different. Yeah. And also the crew's native languages. The two crew's Ooh. native languages were different. But regardless, the flight crew failed to communicate with the passengers because of the broken PA system. Mm. They never understood what was going on or what was going to happen. They were never told to brace. Yeah. Some of them were fucking standing up. That's crazy. They're trying to get on their seatbelts. Yeah. Or they're trying to get on their, their, their life, life preservers. Yeah. And they can't figure it out. And then there's only three flight attendants back there for 57 passengers. Oof. So they're trying to go around and help everybody. And nobody knows what the right thing to do. Should I be buckled? Should I be in my life jacket? Should right. I be waiting at the door? Right. Yeah. And the PA system doesn't work. So they can't. So they have to yell. Ugh. And it's just. it's This is a bad situation. Yeah. So talk about, let's talk about the seatbelts on this airplane. So this is an old airplane. The NTSB says it has cloth to metal seatbelts. Okay. Basically, that means you slip the end of the cloth through the buckle and you pull it tight. You know those belts that like sure. you go through and back? I remember those. That's... They had that little grippy roller thing in the middle. Yep. Yeah, I remember and those that's how belts. you do the seatbelts on this particular airplane. Now... It's like an amusement park ride. <laughs> yep. These seatbelts cannot easily or quickly be fastened, but they definitely can't easily or quickly be unfastened. Mm. So now we use what's called a metal to metal, right? It's like a buckle, yeah, right? But back in this day, they used a cloth to metal loop. And then releasing that was not as straightforward. Sure. Especially if it's under pressure. Yeah. It's going to be really tough to get off. So let's talk about the raft. The cabin crew was improperly trained on the use of the rafts. Apparently. There were two on board. Neither of them made it out of the airplane. And were the rafts um, like up to date? And Yes. Okay. So the safety equipment was up to date. But it was just the crew didn't know what the to do. The crew didn't. It. They probably were trained, but they probably were literally like shown pictures. They'd <sighs> never done it. Yeah. They'd never like taken a raft out of sure. a galley in an emergency situation and thrown it through the door. So since 1970, I'm guessing that the training is... A lot better. I mean, you're you're always right ahead of me, which is perfect. So what happened because of this? So let's talk about that real quick. The FAA mandated better emergency training. That is literally the next line in my... Rock on. It's true. The seatbelt style was replaced with a modern metal-to-metal seatbelt. Because of this incident. Because of this incident. Wow. And the PA system is absolutely required in all aircraft to be functional as a result of this incident. Wow. And here I was thinking like, so the radio doesn't work. Who cares? But now I get it. It's a a thing. So let's talk about the big one here though, which is fuel burn. Yeah. Modern engines are more efficient. Modern fuel systems are better at telling us what the fuel level is. But you can't fix that judgment. So Mm. I want to agree that the airplane was like inherently broken and kind of led them down that road. I want to blame it on the airplane, but I can't. Yeah. I see that. It was the the get there itis call. The get there itis and the sirens call. So I have, I have a sailing like parallel for that because this happens a lot with, with boat crews where people start snowballing bad decision after bad decision for whatever reason, out of nerves or the want to get out. Like, I'm sick of the storm. Let's just get there. And a lot of my friends adopt this thing. They call it the prudent sailor, especially because a lot of sailing couple, sailing people are couples, right? Yeah. So then there's no, like, like the husband and wife are arguing what's the right thing to do. So they always say they always want to have this imaginary 
third party sailor they call him like the prudent sailor and some of them like name him like what what would bob do or what would lorraine do and they say like that person gets to make the decision even though it's an invisible person so it's not about i feel sick i'm nervous i want to get there it's like trying to keep your head steady so that you don't end up in a bad situation that's actually that's awesome I, i really i can appreciate that yeah because we really could have used the prudent sailor in, in this situation, right? <laughs> yeah. We could have really used somebody to say, hey, going around again is probably not a great idea. Well, and I was thinking that the whole time. That's why I asked, who does his decision lie with? Like, I was thinking, there, to me, you know, hearing this, I thought there should be someone who's not in that aircraft who's able to say, you guys need to do this because I'm away. I have that, that like meta perspective and right. like, you're making bad choices. Here's what you need to do. So in the modern era, we have this. Okay. The decision lies with the captain even now, but in the modern era, we have something called ACARS, which is basically, we get text messages okay. from our dispatch <laughs> Yeah. and our dispatch can see how much fuel we have on board and what our engines are doing and what you know, the whole condition of the aircraft in real time. And they'll say, hey, guys, you can't do this again. Or you need to go here. It's almost like that voice of God thing. Like the deus ex machina, you know, in like classic, you know, plays. You need that something to come in and go, we got to make this right. So just a quick story on my part is we got a text message, an ACARS message one day that said, you guys need to shut down the left-hand engine. Just turn it off. It, everything seemed normal to us, but they could see things that we couldn't see. They said, you're about five minutes from failure. Ooh. And so we said, okay, and we shut it off. It's not that huge of a deal to do. Sure. Um, it's something we train for regularly, but it kind of is a testament to modern technology. These guys did not have ACARS. There was no guardian angel yeah. looking over these guys. Yeah. It was them in the cockpit and nobody else. Mm. What I want to ask you about is, I know you can picture this day. So what are your thoughts? You know, illustrate for me eight-foot season of Squall. I mean, tell me about this. This is something, as a pilot, I'm not familiar with. Well, because it's a Squall, it's different because it's probably breaking seas, right? So eight-foot seas in a nice, even swell is not a huge deal. You know, you can ride comfortably depending on... And I forget the word right now, but I think it's called the moment, but basically the distance between the waves. So in normal conditions, if you have like a nice distance between waves and they're eight foot swells and they're even, that's okay. You can roll along like that. You know, it's kind of big, but you're like, all right. Yeah. But in a storm, then they're angry and you have the foam and you have the crashing of each one's crashing on top of you and you might have the odd erratic wave from a different direction. And, And so that becomes an issue. So yeah, in that situation... Um, especially coming right off an island where there's going to be some bouncing off the land right. and weird wind patterns off the mountains of the island. Yeah. In this case, I can't imagine the chaos, right? Because trying to get out of the air, airplane, looking forward and seeing, a, you know, as a passenger looking forward and seeing a huge raft that has now obstructed your exit, Ugh. the shock of the navigator accidentally deploying the... Well, I and, mean, and all the people you said were injured. So if you're injured... And Badly I'm sorry. Injured. And then suddenly, and you didn't know, you didn't see it coming. And then if, if your airplane is filling with water, that's just pure panic right there. Right. Like, right. Yeah. There's no, there's no thinking at that point. It is a testament to the crew that 40 people were able to get out. Absolutely. And that airplane sunk within three minutes. Whew. So and it's you, still down there somewhere. And it's still down there. And you asked about like, does it stay together? The answer to this is, this is one of only literally about three events in open ocean ditching so as an industry we don't have our we don't really have like a feel for like what an open ocean ditching really looks like for an airplane or for a crew or for passengers we prepare for it but we don't have like a realistic history of doing this we this is not something that we've done you know throughout history because like how do you how do you simulate that you don't yeah and that's and that's really the issue with this um with this incident in particular and it's one of the reasons i wanted to like highlight this one and talk about this one is open ocean ditching i mean that's terrifying to me oh for sure so anyway so that's the story so what are your thoughts well uh i'm glad that that was in 1970 and that things have changed (laughs) That's definitely my thought. And then I no longer have romantic notions about the little slides that turn into life rafts. Okay. 
on that note, okay. one of the flight crew was able to detach one of the slides and get it inflated outside of the aircraft. Woo-hoo. And a few people were able to be on it. Yeah. Because when they sh- when they showed in the safety card or the safety videos that they now show, right. they make it look like, look, everybody, we're jumping down a water slide. <laughs> like it's so organized and it's so calm and there's no waves. But but yeah, you're right. It's always going to be in a crazy squall and there's going to be breaking waves and right. seas. And as you said, sharks. You know, whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, that's no longer fun to me. Thank you for killing that childhood notion of the slides for me. Yeah, and when they say, and, you know, I've heard this too. You go to the Caribbean and then sometimes, you know, the flight attendant will joke around and go, in the case that this that this flight turns into a cruise, right? I just want to dispel the myth right now that it will never be a cruise. Right. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's never going to be a cruise. Well, there's a lot of water between where we are now and home, so I'll be thinking about this. Right. I'm glad it, no, it's a red eye, so I'll be asleep having nightmares about it. Well, <laughs> rest assured, it is incredibly rare. That's good. So this is not something that's that's that happens. Yes, like it's ancient history. Really, realistically, I mean, is, this is fifty years ago now. Yeah, this is a long time ago. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So let me tell you about my sources real quick. My main source, I sat down and I read the original NTSB report on ALM nine eighty. That's so, what I did. That's how I wrote this. Oh. I used the Wikipedia a little bit, and I used a single art- article from um, the nineteen seventy New York Times. So it wasn't covered widely in the press. No. Wow. And it's and interestingly, it's actually still not a very well-known incident. Wow. We learned a lot of lessons and a lot of, you know, we talked about the things that came out of it, the PA system, the seat belts. You know, we learned all these things and we kind of, as an industry, we kind of put them into practice and then we forgot why we had them. Right. But, and I've said this before, there are so many things about airplanes and aviation. Even if you don't think about it, it's written in blood. The right. reason we do it is because something happened mm. at some point and we said, we have to fix that. And did anyone have any reports of a mermaid on a rock nearby calling them? There were none. Okay. But now, I mean, I think that it was sirens. Amazing. Come back to the airport. I mean, that's <laughs> terrifying. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me, even though it, it was awfully tragic, but... But it is interesting. It's it wasn't as tragic as some of them, but more tragic than others. I like a salty tale. I'm a little salty. <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Thank you. But thanks for being on with me. Thank and you for having me. We'll do it again sometime. All right.